Our text this morning is from the 11th verse of chapter 5 through the end of the chapter, and actually the, it includes, involves the first verse of the 6th chapter, working together with him, then we appeal to you to receive the grace of, not to receive the grace of God in vain. So, by way of introduction, I want to point out that the importance here of understanding the background of this letter. And one of the things that I've noted in reading many commentaries and other writings upon this particular passage is somehow they seem to miss us behind Paul's words. Paul here is defending, and here's the important, this is the important understanding for the, for the background, that Paul is defending his apostleship and ministry against Judaizers. Jewish people that came into the Christian church claiming to be Christians who taught that the physical descendants of Abraham are the only true citizens of the kingdom. And then they hold to the fact that the old covenant rituals, the uh, ordinances and the festivals are still in effect. And they need to be obeyed. In fact, one of the major things was, except a man is circumcised, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Circumcision is absolutely essential to salvation, or there can be no salvation. The Apostle Paul was a minister of the New Covenant, but because he was reaching Gentiles with the gospel. They accused him of discarding the old covenant traditions for something new and palatable to the class of people that he was reaching. Paul constantly reminds them, I'm just like you. I'm a Jew. I'm, the seed of, I'm part of the seed of Abraham. But Jesus came to establish a new covenant. And the old has passed away. And that is real clear in this passage. But sometimes because of our lack of realizing or understanding the background, we read different content into his words. And that's my point. So they objected to Paul because he, although a Jew, preached this new covenant and sought to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. And it, it's, clearly, it's clear that he, even in the old covenant, Gentiles could be brought into the kingdom of Israel, but not, never on the full status, and full and equal status. Because they were never real true descendants of Abraham. The only true people of God, according to them, are the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham. Now, you could become a, a Jew by uh, being brought into Israel, but you could never, never arrive to the status of a physical descendant of Abraham. Paul said, no, 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 that's not true. Both Jew and Gentile have equal standing in the New Covenant. There is no difference. There's no difference. 
former distinctions are removed. And God is building a new thing. A new kingdom of believers out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and people. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign forever on earth. For, reign on earth forever. Isn't that amazing? Paul developed this understanding in Galatians because he was they had problems there for early in his ministry. And again, arguing against the Judaizers, we read there, but now that faith has come, that is the new covenant kingdom, we are no longer under a guardian. That's the old covenant. The old covenant was considered a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all the sons of God through faith. Now this doesn't mean, when Paul says this, he's not saying that every individual person who has ever been born into this world is now a son of God. But what he's saying by that is, you are all, there's no distinction. For in Christ, you are all in Christ. You see, there's the, there's the distinguishing mark. In Christ, you are all sons of God. All sons of God, Jew or Gentile, makes no difference. You got an equal standing. And it's through faith. Not rituals. It's through faith in the Son of God. And then he continues. This is Galatians 3, 25 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized that is, immersed into Christ. And I don't believe he's talking about the physical baptism here of real water. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit of God that's pictured in the ritual of baptism. As many of you were, as were baptized by the Holy Spirit, see, into Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's not a rite. But what the rite pictures, he baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You don't get put him on in the water. <laughs> you put him on by the work of the Spirit, which is pictured in the water. So then he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, which is Gentile. There is neither slave or free. Your status in life is unimportant. And there is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, that's the, that's the glory of the gospel. And if you are Christ's, now this is the sentence. And if you are Christ's, do you belong to Christ? If you're Christ, then are you Abraham's offspring? 
How so? Heirs according to the promise. It isn't about your physical standing. It's about the promise. And in and the promise is, goes back there to Genesis chapter 12 where, where uh, uh, God said to Abram, and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So the promise is clear back in the beginning. And it has nothing to do with the physical seed. In fact, I really truly believe the history of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament scriptures is a convincing evidence and proof that this was never to be God's plan. That in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he wanted his people to be a light and salt in the earth, a testimony to the glory and the grace of God, and that they would be a witness to the nations of the, great, of the glory of God. But they failed. But God knew that too. It's not like God had, a, had plan B. And so, okay, plan, my plan A didn't work. In fact, that's, Paul makes that clear there in Romans 2. It's not as though the word of God had failed. And God said, oh, I guess that didn't, do, that didn't work. I guess I'm going to try something new. No, no, no. He always planned it this way. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. As Paul tells him there in Galatians. And who is Isaac? But none other than Jesus Christ himself. The seed of Isaac. So that brings us then to our text. And particularly verse number 17. And this is what I want you to see. Therefore. and re Now let's read it with this background in mind. Because this is important. Therefore if anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. Now there are some translations that, that uh, uh, want to say that the word here means creature. Which I, is, I suppose is alright, but I think it misses the point. It's a creation here. And this, this word is, is more often than not translated creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. What old? Well, you read most evangelical preachers preach on that, and they say, the old, your old life, your sins, your failures, they're all gone. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the covenant. The old is gone. Behold, the new, notice, has come. The new what? The new covenant. The new creation. The new kingdom. And interestingly, and here's what I want you to, to see and understand. Rabbis used to use this phrase, a new creation, to speak of Gentiles that were converted from idolatry into Judaism. He's using their own language. So now Paul puts this expression back in their faces and testifies that if anyone, Jew or Gentile, is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. And part of God's restored program. So that brings me to the first point here, the work of God to reconcile all things to himself. It's the work of God, not Paul's work. And that's another thing. Paul wants them to understand. It's not something I invented and it's not something I'm pushing as if it came from me. It didn't come from me. It's from God. So we have, he's developing here the plan of God which is the rescue and restoration of the, of the original creation and the fallen world back to its original status. That, that was his plan in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell, he said, I'm, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to reclaim it. And I'm going to reclaim a new human race to have dominion over the works of my hands that will be exactly what I want them to be. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And what we have here is uh, Genesis 3.15 again. I've pointed that out a number of times. God passed judgment upon the serpent. This serpentine being. I think this Nakash, is not, he wasn't a snake that was inhabited by Satan. Can you imagine a snake up in a tree and a woman talking to it? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Na women have a natural aversions to spiders and snakes. No, he was a beautiful being. He's a Nakash. He probably had serpentine appearance. That's why he's called a serpent, the old serpent. But uh, to, um, to point out, I think, they, I think they used to probably walk on four legs, the serpents did. And then, um, as a judgment, he took their legs off of them, so now they slither around on the ground, which women hate even worse. <laughs> but... Uh, Oh, uh, that's that's a sidestep, and and I'm not uh, certain of that at all. So <laughs> it's just my opinion. But as Adam here, uh, he Adam represents the whole human race, and I don't know that Adam really understood that. But when when the uh, serpent uh, approached Eve, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, rep, I'm going to get back to it, Adam represents here the race in the fall the whole human race because he is the father of the human race not because and i i think there's something to federal headship but i'm but my own personal opinion is he is the father of the race every human being that ever walked upon the face of the earth has one great great granddaddy in the beginning and that's Adam. We're all related in that one man, Adam. So Christ, who is the second Adam, represents one race in his obedience and sacrifice. So in verse 15 of 
of our chapter, we read, For he died for all. Not, not every human being that ever lived, but he died for all that he represents. And they, the, represent, the, the designation of the representation is these two words, in Christ. He died for all of those that are in him. That those, that those who live because of, that, of his death, see, he died, but, though, but in him, those he died for live. And so that, that they may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for you so that you will live for him. That's the message of that 15th verse. That takes us then to this, the fall itself. There's a lot of teaching that Satan fell before the creation. I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. We read there in Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, verses 12 to 15, he's describing Satan. He says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings. See, jewelry. And your engravings. On the day you were created... They were prepared. Uh, they were, they were prepared. That is all. Everything that adorned him in his beauty. You were now. Notice this. You were the an anointed guardian cherub. I think he was the head. He was in Eden, representing God as a guardian. I placed you, God said. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. When was that unrighteousness found? Because God's very clear here. He created him perfect. He put him in the garden as a, as a guardian cherub and he was blameless in that until unrighteousness was found in you. So when did he fall? It would appear that it was after the creation week. And, and I, I will argue this because God was very clear about that. See, we know that there had to be a creation because he was put in the Garden of Eden. He was on the mountain of God. That had to come into existence. And it did in the created creation week. So it had to be after the creation that he fell. Because God, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, after he saw all that he had created, declared it very good. If there were sin in the universe, he couldn't call it very good. And then, on top of that, the scripture says he rested the seventh day. What did he rest for? Did God get tired? 
I mean, that's a lot of work creating a universe in six days. Wore him out. (laughs) He said, I'm taking the day off. Uh Uh-uh. No. Why did he rest? He rested because there was nothing else to do. It was done perfectly. And as a symbol of that, he rested the seventh day. But it's interesting. You go to the gospel in uh, John chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus declares, My Father has been working. And the Greek there means He has been working, and He was working and has been working up until now, and I am now working. Wait a minute. If he was done in the creation, what is what is Jesus talking about? Well, the fall took place. After the fall took place, the Father started working again. And what was he going to do? He's going to restore, rescue and restore that which sin had taken. And Jesus is working to that same end and and that goal. In fact, he's the one who's going to do it. Now look at Psalm 8, which speaks of God's creative work, especially his purpose for mankind. So we read there in verses 4 to 6, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All things under his feet. That's repeated again and again and again of Jesus Christ. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. That was what God originally intended for Adam. And Adam's descendants after him. So here's what I here's what I believe. I believe Satan became jealous. He's after all superior. Superior in wisdom, superior in beauty, superior in ability. I mean Satan was far and above anything this Adam was. And I think he got jealous. And he said if Adam's getting dominion over all things, That should be mine. I'm the guardian cherub. I'm I'm on the mountain of God. Which I believe Eden was on a mountain, by the way. We know that Satan rebelled against God and that he lost, excuse me, a host of angels were also included in his rebellion. So we read there in Revelation 12, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems and his tail swept a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. I think that's fallen angels. And the dragon stood before the woman was about to give birth. See, this is a story now of the playing out of the kingdom. 
she was about to give birth so that when her when she bore her child he might devour it the second adam and she gave birth to a male child who is to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron that's jesus he is the son of man he's been given dominion forever and ever but her child was caught up to god that's through the resurrection and to his throne. He's now seated at the Father's right hand. And the woman fled into the wilderness. That's where we are today. We're in the wilderness. Where she has a place prepared by God. She's in the wilderness, but she's not forsaken of God. Just like the children of Israel in the wilderness were not forsaken of God either. So that brings me to the deception of Eve and the fall of Adam and to God's plan to reverse the damage of the fall. A simple recapping of the fall reveals that Satan deceived Eve by first questioning God's motives, then denying God's word, you will not surely die, and finally provoking a desire to eat the forbidden fruit, and she saw the fruit was good. And she took it, and took, ate it, and gave it to her husband. But according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Adam was not deceived. And he wasn't off somewhere working when uh, Satan deceived her. He was standing right there. And instead of doing what he was required to do to protect the woman, he let her make the choice. And plunged the whole human race into sin. I don't think he fully realized what he did. Adam was not deceived, Timothy tells us, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. Perhaps Adam did not fully understand the extent of his obedience, but he plunged the whole human race into rebellion. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 reveals God's plan to rescue and to restore the human race to his original purpose. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. See, this childbearing here refers to the virgin birth. The seed of the woman there in Genesis 3 and verse 15. It's not this. Women don't have seed. <laughs> But, the, but God said he, she, that Christ is the seed of the woman, the virgin birth. And so it refers to the incarnation of the Son of God. And the path then of this rescue and restoration is seen in the progress of the covenants which God makes with man. Keep that in mind. So here's a major distinction between the Old and New Covenants. The Old Covenant was based on flesh. The circumcision of the male was a work of the flesh. And if you're not circumcised, you can't be part of the kingdom. The New Covenant is based on promise. And the promise is made to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth promise 
So in verse 16 of our of our see, I want you to see that in this in this text right here. So look at verse 16 of of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What did Paul mean by that? Jesus was born a Jew. He's part of the physical seed of Abraham. As promised, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. But the gospel isn't about what your natural descendant, your, your being naturally descended. It's a matter of the promise. Flesh typically refers to sinful bodies in which we are then confined until the resurrection. However, sometimes, and, and I should say more than that, often it is used to distinguish between Israel, God's covenant people, in the old economy after the flesh versus the church, God's new covenant community, a people who are according to the promise after the Spirit. So this is explained in Romans 9 where Paul discusses his burden for his kinsmen. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Verse 3. And he explains, they are Israelites and to whom belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. They had wonderful things. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now you see what Paul's saying here? So now take that and apply that here. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh. That is that he was a physical descendant of Abraham, but we no longer do so. Why? He's risen. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of God. And then Paul further explained, but it is not as though the word of God had failed. That is Israel's rejection of their long expected Messiah dressed in the prophets. And it seemed that, that seemed that, that God's promise had failed. So God said, oh, hey, I goofed. I'm going to have to go with plan B. Uh-uh, not God. God knew exactly what was happening. And Paul explains it. For, uses that word for. For, it's an explanation. He's explaining why, it, why this is not a failure. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. True Israel, which is Christ. And not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, according to the flesh, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. Read that. That's what the scripture says. 
That's Romans 9, 3 to 7. This includes all, Jew, Gentile, all who have been born again. That is what reconciling is all about. Uniting the whole redeemed race into one new kingdom of God. That brings me to, secondly, to the nature of God's work, which is expressed in verse number 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the minister, the message of reconciliation. Right there it is. Very simple terminology. To reinforce this, Paul uses the emphatic, verse 18, in verse 18, God was reconciling us to himself. Verse 19. And that that's uh, emphasizing what Paul had stated back in verse 18, which is all things are of God. All things are of God. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So that's not here, here again. What does world mean? Is it, it means Jew and Gentile both. That means people from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation. That means all the descendants of Adam, but not every single individual. Only those who are in Christ by election. That's what, I really believe that's what John means in John 3.16. God loved the world. Not just one particular race out of the world. So this reconciliation is the work of God whereby his former enemies are brought into a relationship of favor by settling the issues of enmity. So we have Colossians 1, 19-23. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. See, the rebellion didn't just occur here on earth either it, it satan took about a third of the angels with him in that rebellion so this reconciliation is going to take place on two planes the spiritual plane and the physical plane by the blood of his cross so paul uses this word world there as the extent of his reconciliation and not to re, be re, viewed as the uh uh, totality. So every human being. That brings me to the second point, and this is a much shorter one. So let, hang on, we're about done. <laughs> the work of ambassadors. He says God's doing this, but He's also committed to us the message. The ministry, a heavenly embassage. In verse 20. And I like to, the King James here, 
which says, instead of therefore, he uses the term now. Now! In uh, verse 20. Uh, therefore, or now, we are ambassadors for Christ. And what he's, do- what he's doing, he said, here's the plan of God, this is how God's working it out, and here's where you fit into the picture. This is where you come in. Now, we are ambassadors for Christ. You want to know, Paul says, what what my place is in all of this? I'm not trying to make something new, going against everybody else here and set up something new. Oh no. I'm just an ambassador. I represent the King of Kings. And He's the one who is directing my steps and my message. It's not mine. It's His. And what is it? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's my message. We've got some enmity going on here. Confusion. And God doesn't... Part part of the problem of of our present is the tribulation. See? (laughs) We're we're, We're in tribulation. And there's a lot of confusion because there are false prophets and false Christs and there's false messages and and there's confusion and Christians are persecuted and we're misunderstood and we're rejected. But God knows all that too. So what's our job? Our job is to patiently endure and keep on giving the message. Be reconciled to God. How? Through Christ. You must be born again. See yourself in need and come to God and find grace. The gospel message. So an ambassador is a a resident of a foreign country who is sent by that country to represent the country, hit that country in another country. We have ambassadors from all over the world that, that live in Washington, D.C. to represent the countries from which they come. We're ambassadors. We're from the heavenly country living here on earth representing that country on earth. We're citizens of a kingdom of God sent into this wicked and hostile world to confront and uh, the, a world controlled by the prince of the power of the air to represent Christ and to deliver the message of the gospel so that God can rescue his own from this world to become citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen? So what's the message? The message to the Corinthians then that Paul said, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is he saying? He's, he's saying, I think he's saying something similar to that what he said in, in the Galatians. I stand in fear of you. I, I may have labored here in vain. You people aren't getting the message. You're confused. 
Don't be confused. Be reconciled to God. So he says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This process then is explained in verse 21. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And here's this is the gospel message. He made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him sinners, we, might become the righteousness of God. Are you the righteousness of God here this morning? You are if you're in Christ. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter what your parentage was. But what matters is whether the Holy Spirit has done this work in your heart. And that's also the, me that, uh, the message of the gospel. We preach that Jesus Christ became the substitute for his people. He took their sins on himself and he suffered the wrath. They suffered the wrath of God in their he suffered the wrath of God in their place. As a consequence, God made those for whom Christ substituted to be righteous in him. This work cannot be for everyone without exception. Jesus did not die to make salvation merely possible. This is one of the big problems of much of the evangelical preaching. Is Jesus Christ is set forth as the Savior... But he, he died only to make it possible for you to be saved. If you do something, you have to ask him into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, then Jesus can save you. Otherwise, he's powerless to do that. No, thank you. My God's able to speak worlds into existence. He can speak salvation into my heart which he does through his Holy Spirit because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And my faith, my trusting Christ, my ex receiving Christ into my life is a consequence of that new birth. I now see Jesus Christ as true and desirable. Faith is activated by regeneration and the evidence of, and, it, and is the evidence of salvation, not the cause of it. Some say you have to be born again in order to be saved. No, you're being born again is the evidence that you have been saved. It's not the cause of it. A Christian is saved because Jesus died to save him. When Christ said it's finished, it was a done deal not waiting for something on your part, which you may not exercise. And then, of course, Jesus died for, for nothing for you. Uh-uh. God makes us righteous because of the work of Christ, and it's the ambassador's job just to take that message and to spread it far and wide. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, you will be saved. I don't worry about getting him to believe. I just, I just need to be worried about getting the message out. And God will take the message and save whom he will. So what's the conclusion? 
The impact on the Corinthians is seen in, in chapter 6 and verse 1. Working together with him, he says then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That is to no purpose. Any failure of the Corinthians could not be laid on their having fallen away from salvation. Their failure could only mean that they made a claim, but there was no work of God to support that claim. It was a false claim. And the mark of a reconciled sinner is his willing, willing submission and obedience to the Lordship of Christ. He does the will of God happily and for the glory of Christ. Paul cites, for this, there in uh, verse 2 of chapter 6, Isaiah 49, verse 8, and to prove it, that it's God who saves his people, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. What Paul did not cite from the passage proves God's new covenant plans for the earth. In uh, verse 12, and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land. Behold, there shall come, they shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene, which is a people living in the extremities of the world. The word Syene in Hebrew means people who live in the extremities of the world. So we're reading the book of Revelation. Here is a, a multitude that no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and people from Syene, from the extremities of the world. Father, thanks for this glorious gospel, for the word of God that sets it forth so clearly, for the spirit that opens our minds and our hearts to receive it. And Lord, we are your new creation. We are in Jesus Christ as a people of God here. And if there's anyone in this audience this morning who's not born again, who maybe have made a mere profession but has never really been born from above, we pray, God, for their, for their soul, that you would receive them unto salvation, that they will not have believed in vain. But Lord, all of those who are yours, help us to understand our, our simple task, our job. Why we're still here is just this, that we are ambassadors for you to proclaim this simple message that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. That Christ died for us. That he was buried, that he rose again. That he's seated at the right hand of majesty. And that if we trust in him... And Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. We will not only be saved, but we will be made righteous. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you, our Father, in His name and for His glory. Amen.